Well, these are certainly challenging times, times when everybody is looking for some good news because the news is very important, but it's not good. And uh, right now we've got a lot of people putting out, you know, positive, encouraging, funny, witty, creative content out on the internet because we're all stuck in our homes. And, and so, you know, uh, John Krasinski started doing this uh, good news network and his just sharing stories of love and generosity, kind of a lot of people saying, let's show that in the midst of this crisis, there's still good things in the world. And, you know, they're definitely uplifting and encouraging little stories. We just watched a family rewrite Les Mis and do it, you know, pandemic themed, you know, musical in their living room. So people are doing these really wonderful things that really serve as these momentary distractions of hope and, and laughter in the middle of all this. But of course, as, as wonderful as those things are, uh, they're temporary because of course, when you shut the screen off or you finish writing uh, your good news segment, um, the reality of the world that we're in is still there. And the, the real good news that the world is craving and needing is the news of a cure. Today is Good Friday, and this is where the people of God all around the world, we are narrowing our gaze to the cross. We are being reminded of the ultimate good news. We are being reminded of the ultimate cure to the ultimate problem. Our immediate problem right now is this global pandemic. Uh, but our ultimate problem is actually sin. The immediate problem of COVID-19 is that it has the potential of infecting some of us. Whereas the ultimate problem of sin has comprehensively affected all of us. The immediate problem of COVID-19, um, it, it's a threat of premature death. But the ultimate problem of sin uh, means the, the certainty and the inevitability of death. And so on Good Friday, we avert our gaze to the cross to the ultimate solution, to the ultimate cure of our ultimate problem, which actually creates tremendous hope and assurance and certainty and strength to face our immediate problem. Our text today is Mark chapter 14. I'm going to start reading excerpts from 14 and 15 today. The historical account recording the cross of Christ in 33 AD. It's a historical account that plants a stake in the ground of human history. The cross of Jesus Christ is not just a feel-good distraction from our immediate problem, which is the threat of death. It is the cure for our ultimate problem, destroying the finality of death. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 12. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, when they killed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared and there he'll make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he said to them and they prepared the Passover. And as they were eating, Jesus took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it. And he gave it to them and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and when they had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink, in the new, uh, drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, 
they went out from the Mount of Olives. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter and James and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And he went a little further and he fell on the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Now Jesus' betrayer had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he's the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately they went up to Jesus and they said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on Jesus and they took him. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent and he answered nothing. And the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes. And he said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned Jesus to be deserving of death. And then some began to spit on him and they blindfolded him. They beat him. They said to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and they led him away and they delivered him to Pontius Pilate. And that was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above him, the king of the Jews. And with him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And so the scripture was fulfilled, which says he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by, they blasphemed him. They wagged their heads and they were saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and rebuild it in three, three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And likewise, the chief priests also, mocking amongst themselves with the scribes, they said, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And even those who were crucified with him, they reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Elach, Elach, lema sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. And then someone ran and they filled a sponge full of sour wine. They put it on a reed and they offered to him saying, drink, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and he breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite Jesus saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the son of God. This is God's word. As a kid, I did not understand how Good Friday was good. And that's, I thought it was anything but good. Um, But that's because what I didn't understand is that the nature of love is costly. Um, Love by nature, it is oriented away from the self and towards others as we often Talk about it, Redeemer, at your benefit, my expense, it's costly. And in that way, it makes Good Friday good because Good Friday, this text that we just read, it reveals that we don't have a God 
who sat back with his arms crossed, waiting for us to make ourselves beautiful. We have a God who came towards us, stretched his arms out, and through his costly sacrificial love makes us beautiful. Mm-hmm. And this all takes pl- place during the Passover, which was a, a, a meal commemorating the defining moment in Israel's history uh, when God sent the plagues on Egypt and passed judgment on anyone, on everyone. And the only way to be spared by God's judgment was to trust in God's provision, which was a sacrifice. And so Jew and Egyptian alike, that very first Passover, anyone who trusted in the sacrifice provided by God would not face the judgment of God. God's judgment would pass over. And so they called this Passover lamb, um, I'm sorry, they called the lamb the Passover lamb because at the first Passover, they took a lamb, marked the doorposts with its blood, and then they cooked the meat and they ate it. And that's important to know that they would eat this meal. It was, a, it was a meal that they ate with their family. In other words, you actually took in the sacrifice. You didn't just acknowledge God's provision in some sort of you know, external way. You actually had to internalize and receive God's provision in a personal way. So salvation from the beginning has always been faith in God's substitutionary sacrifice. And so what's important to know as you think about the Last Supper is that Year after year, as they would preside over the Passover meal, the person presiding over it would say something like this. This is uh, in Israel's history. They would say, this is the bread of affliction eaten by our fathers in the wilderness. Something to that effect. So everybody was expecting to hear, this is the bread of our affliction, right? Eaten by our fathers in the wilderness. But then Jesus is presiding over the Last Supper, this Passover meal. And he changes the script in a way that nobody would expect. They'd followed it one way for generations. All of a sudden, here's what they hear. This bread is my body. Jesus actually inserts himself in the text. Jesus interrupts millennia of tradition where they would would think about the bread being the bread of affliction that their fathers ate in the wilderness. And Jesus goes, this is actually my body. He places himself at the center of the meal as the substitutionary uh, sacrifice. And just imagine uh, uh, the, the shock of the table to hear those words as Jesus changes this script. He's presenting himself as the one who will lead humanity on the ultimate exodus from our common enemy. He will lead all of those who trust in him from death until life. All of the earlier sacrifices were pointing toward him and all of the sin from all of history has been passed over onto him. And so just as the first Passover was observed the night before um, God brought salvation from death by the blood of a lamb, this Passover is being observed the night before God will bring salvation from eternal death by the blood of Jesus, the perfect lamb. It's important to know that the Passover meal, that last supper, it's not a vegetarian dish, right? They would eat lamb every year. And notice though, that in the text we just read, the bread is mentioned, the cup is mentioned, but all four gospel writers omit any mention of the lamb, which would have been on that table, which they would have been eating. It's like all four gospel writers are provoking us to see that the lamb is not being feasted at on the table. It's directing our attention to the lamb, the perfect lamb who is seated at the table. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's just a, an incredible uh, call to our attention to see what Christ is, is providing and bringing. Another thing worth noting about this traditionally is that you would always eat the Passover meal with your family. 
And all of these disciples all had families. So what is Jesus doing? Why are they not all eating with their families? Jesus is setting the precedent, the grounds for unity of a new family. His family, the family of God, who would be um, unified, not because of common education or common socioeconomic status or common political leanings or common ethnicity. We are all united, Redeemer family. We are all united to Christ by grace and faith in the sin-absolving, death-defeating gospel. That is the basis for our unity. And so Jesus, rather than traditionally sending all of his disciples to eat with their families, is establishing this, this new family with him at the center. And so the Lord's table, it's this meal that's pointing to an eternity of celebrating, an eternity of great rest in the soul, life from death, peace without end, joy with no horizon, right? All possible because of our Passover lamb. And here we are in the midst of this COVID crisis and we're unable to gather together and eat and drink. And my prayer for you, church, between now and when we gather again, is that the significance of this would go deep inside you, is that, the, uh, that you would begin to miss it, long for it, anticipate it, look forward to it, let us recognize the gravity of it, and that it's not... Um, about your individual family or mine, but that together, unified around Christ, this amazing celebration of the Passover lamb. And the text moves us from the Passover to the garden. And this is when we find Jesus in anguish and he's surrounded by sleepy disciples. And there's this you know, disparaging difference between God's immeasurable generosity and human inadequacy. He's about to give his life. They can't stay awake. If you were meeting a friend for breakfast, remember the good old days when we used to meet people for breakfast? The good old days when we used to leave our houses and sit with other human beings? Remember those days? If you were meeting somebody for breakfast and they didn't show up and you texted them, hey, where are you? And they were like, oh, I'm 20 minutes away. Um, 20 minutes is a fake number. That means they forgot. They're leaving their house right now. They slept in. Imagine they sleep in and you're like, listen, don't bother. It's fine. We'll do it next Saturday. So they fall asleep and you set up another breakfast the following week and the same thing happens. What are the odds you're going to set up a third one? What are the odds? I mean, something as small and trivial as somebody sleeping in for breakfast two weeks in a row on you, you'd probably be like, you know what? I just don't think. Let's just do something else because this isn't where You just give up. Jesus is about to give his life And he wakes them three times and he still goes through with the cross, enduring the pain and the shame for us, for our salvation, even though he's completely abandoned. He's totally faced. It's not just about his friends that are asleep. They are a picture of our unworthiness of him. And yet he goes through with it. And here we have this vivid record of of the son of God, God the Son asking God the Father to change the circumstances. He says, let this cup pass for me. If it's possible, let this cup pass for me. And at the same time, though he's asking the Father to change the circumstances, he's not trying to take control of the circumstances. The Son is trusting the Father with the circumstances of his life. And you and I are very well acquainted with asking God to change the circumstances. If anything, that's what most of our prayers Sound like these days. Oh God, take this thing away. Take the global pandemic away. We're very familiar with 
praying, oh God, change the circumstances. And we're much less comfortable with saying, Lord, I'm going to just trust my life to you with all circumstances. Because what it is that you know and what it is that you desire is going to be for my ultimate good. Jesus' immediate desire is not the cross, but his ultimate desire was to save you, save me, please his Father. And so therefore, he endured the cross. So Jesus submits his immediate desire to the will of the Father because the will of the Father was his ultimate desire. And then, you know, while Jesus is still asking his friends to stay away and, and, and pray with him, Judas comes and he comes with a mob and they come with swords because, of course, every rebellion in all of world history came at the tip of the sword and they're expecting Jesus' rebellion to be a political rebellion that would be no different, that would keep the same old thing at the top, at the top politics and power. And so everybody's expecting that that's what Jesus is up to, politics and power. And so that's why they come with their swords. Uh, the other gospel writers record that Peter reaches for his sword. And uh, because throughout all of world history and even today, there's the ongoing power struggles of everybody reaching for their swords. And Christ is a king like no other who says, everybody put away your swords. Mm-hmm. Um, which leads us to him talking about his kingdom. The kingdom, of course, that Jesus was bringing was not about swapping out everybody who was in power and then putting his disciples in power. The cross reveals this king of majesty and meekness, unlike what the world has ever seen, because, of course, Jesus lays down his power. The cross was the means of bringing us into the kingdom of God, liberating us to be able to relate to the kingdoms of this world in a completely new way. Money and power and status and success and prestige, that's the fuel that runs this world. But because the kingdom has come in our hearts, that's no longer the fuel that runs our souls. So they come in with the swords into Gethsemane. They're expecting Jesus' kingdom to be some regurgitated version of every other political kingdom. And it just simply isn't. Because Christ is a king whose kingdom is cross-shaped, the self-emptying, giving, and, and restoring love. And then the text moves us to the courts. And we get to the courts and the passage reveals that Jesus is on the trial for his life. And when the priest asks him, are you the Messiah? His answer is, I am. That should remind us of something. He says, I am. But then he goes further and he says something so provocative, it causes this huge emotional explosion. The Jews believed that the Messiah would be a political deliverer, a human political deliverer. They didn't believe that he would be divine. So when Jesus goes on to say, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power coming at the clouds of heaven, all the priests knew what those phrases were. That sentence is chock full of things that made the the high priest explode. Son of man means coming from God. Right hand of power means I have the power to judge. And clouds of heaven doesn't mean water vapor. It means the presence of God, the glory of God. In other words, while they stood there presuming to judge Jesus, Jesus' answer was, I'm the divine judge with the power to judge you. And the priest goes Hulkamania. Verse 63, tears his shirt. What are you going to do, brother? When he says he's divine, he loses his mind because of Jesus is saying that he's God. And it is astounding. Think of it. This religious brouhaha breaks out of all of the, of all of the images, of all of the scriptures, of all of the metaphors 
that Jesus could have chosen, of, of everything he could have chosen at that moment in his trial, he chooses judge. He describes himself as the judge. Christ the king, provoking us all to see the paradox. The judge over the entire world is being judged by the world. Which takes us to the cross. The passage moves us there and all four gospel writers make sure that we know that it was eerily dark. Just like Sally Lloyd-Jones' story for the kids. The sky was like a bruise. It's eerily dark. It's supernaturally dark. Uncharacteristically dark. Right? It's from... It's lunchtime until three in the afternoon. And the darkness is a sign of God's judgment. Throughout scripture, darkness is a sign of judgment. Notice where God pours the judgment. <clears throat> Jesus cries out in chapter 15, verse 35. He cries out, my God. And the my is the language of intimacy. It's covenant language, right? When God uh, made the promise of being uh, our covenant God, he said, I will be your God, you will be my people. So this is a deeply personal cry. God's judgment and wrath is being poured out on his son. And Jesus' response to this is, my God, it's this deeply personal cry. I'll explain it this way. If after our service this morning, one of you sends me an email and you say, Paul, we've decided we don't want to come to Redeemer anymore. We never want to see you again. I will be sad. Probably for the day or a couple days. I'm, that will make me sad. But I'll get over it and I'll move on with my life. I'll be sad, but I'll move on with my life. But if after this service, Susan and Rebecca and Isaiah and Nigel stood up and they said to me, Paul, we're done with you and we don't want to see you again for the rest of our life. I will be destroyed. I will not recover from that because the depth of love, the depth of intimacy is what, is what creates uh, the, the depth of the wounding that Jesus is experiencing in the morning. It would take me many years to get over that because of the, because of the intimacy of that, of that relationship. Jesus is crying out this deeply personal cry and what he's doing is he's taking away our judgment on judgment day. Christ, the perfect judge, is being judged. He's taking away all our judgment. And at this moment, the modern mind doesn't like the sermon anymore because the modern mind is like, I love hipster Jesus. I love the Jesus that hangs with the tax collectors and the prostitutes. But I don't like this talk about a God of judgment, a God of wrath. So let's do away with his judgment, do away with his wrath. Let's not talk about that. And then God will be like super loving. And that is dead wrong, and I'll explain why. Uh, first of all, when we think of wrath and judgment, we think of, uh, to use the vernacular of uh, theologian J.I. Packer, we, we think of seeing red, we think of being really angry, seething, gritting our teeth, and we think of this uh, sort of like just provocative, you know, sinful rage, wrath. That's how we think of it. Because when we, if you and I were ever... To, if, if a friend or a family member ever described one of us as, whoa, he, I just saw his wrath, that's what it would be. We were seeing red. God's wrath is not like that. God is not like us. God's wrath is perfect justice. It's perfect, holy justice. He doesn't wink at sin and be like, yeah, that's okay, that's fine. Let's just pretend that never happened. That's not loving. Um, if somebody was doing harm to somebody that you loved, if somebody's life was being disintegrated because of poor choices or poor people who are in their life and their life was being disintegrated, 
that would create anger in you if you loved them. That would make you wrathful because you would see the deterioration of their life and you would be enraged at that thing that was destroying their life. But if something was destroying their life and you just sat there and were like, hey, you know what? We're just, it's fine. In the end, it's all fine. Everybody's fine. You're fine. The person who's abusing you is fine. It's all fine. The abuse is all fine. In the end, it's all fine. That is not a God of love. That is not a God of justice. That is not a God worthy of our worship. That is a God of the modern construct because we impose our frail and faulty sinful ideas of wrath on God. And after we project that on him, we say, well, how could that possibly be loving? But what this is here is this is perfect justice, perfect judgment being poured out, not on you and me, on himself. This is the glory of the gospel. This is the good news of Good Friday, that what God has provided for you is, was absolutely everything that he required from you in Jesus Christ. And so that is the good news of the gospel that we see on display in the cross. And since the beginning, mankind rejected God in favor of being our own gods. And so <clears throat> sin meant that the way to God was closed. And what we discover is that on the cross of Good Friday, it's torn wide open, verse 38, as the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom, just to make it very, very clear who was the one who did it. And so our Christian faith, it's not a, an, an exercise in religious ladder climbing as we try and please God and, 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 and work our way up to salvation. Good Friday reminds us of the grace of God that came all the way down, that the veil was torn all the way down. And that torn veil means that anyone who trusts in Christ can go to God, finding his rescuing and renewing and restoring grace. And so I, and the passage at this point, it records the very first person who turns to Christ's cross and finds salvation. And it's an unlikely candidate of grace. It's not someone you and I would have ever picked. It's the Roman centurion. He's presiding over Christ's death on the cross. And he finds salvation through Christ's death on the cross. And he watched Jesus die and he said, surely this man was the son of God. Let's let that sink in. Okay. We wouldn't pick this guy. He's candidate of grace. This Roman centurion had coins in his pocket, right? If he had coins in his pocket, those coins said Tiberius Caesar Divi Filius Augustus. And Divi Filius in the Latin means son of God. All the coins were stamped. Tiberius Caesar is the son is the divine son of Augustus. The Roman centurions, the Romans believed that the emperor was divine. For Rome, Caesar was the son of God. Yet this centurion comes to saving faith and he calls Jesus Christ the son of God. Surely this man is the son of God. The first convert at the foot of the cross is the last person Roman centurion, how do you become a Roman centurion, by the way? You've had a pretty hard life. You've done some things. By the time you're a Roman centurion, you've got a, you've got a, a sheet. There's a file on you of the things you've done that have enabled you to, to uh, get to that. But yet he's, he's an unlikely candidate of grace. And the reason why I bring this up is because God specializes in saving the unlikely. Every single one of you are unlikely candidates of grace. I am an unlikely candidate of grace. As I think about my life, my heart, my mind, the, the, the way that I've lived my life, my own frailty, my own sin, I'm an unlikely preacher of grace. This whole entire situation this morning of us celebrating Good Friday together is a radical scandal 
of God's incredible grace. What do you think the odds are that during this global pandemic that God will continue to specialize in the unlikely, that he will continue to draw people to saving grace? He will do it. Do you think the odds are that while we can't even gather together as a church and for you to invite somebody to church would look like I'm clicking a couple buttons now, <coughs> what do you think the odds are that in this time when all of God's people are quarantined in their homes, that God, by the power of his spirit, will continue to do the unlikely and save people in grace. He will do it. Our God specializes in saving unlikely candidates by his grace. He will do it. And so Jesus Christ has lived the perfect life that we ought to have lived, but we're not. And he died the atoning death so that we will not experience God's wrath and judgment, but we will only experience <clears throat> the warmth of God's grace. Good Friday foreshadows Easter Sunday. Good Friday foreshadows the end. Easter Sunday foreshadows a new beginning. And because of Christ's cross, injustice and suffering and global pandemics, even death is like a passing shadow for us, church. It's like a passing shadow. It's like cloud cover that comes over your home for a few hours and covers the sun, but you know that at some point it's moving and the sun will shine again. This is the promise of the gospel, that united to Christ by grace and faith, there will be beauty and there will be light forever mm -hmm. because the finality uh, of darkness has been destroyed at the cross. And so may you be encouraged by the goodness of this gospel on this Good Friday. Let's pray.